Shall we begin? Why not? Welcome to Frankie Sense and More. It's like she's got a whole lot of goodness for you with a little bit of sass. Frankie, did you just say... She sure did. Not to mention, <laughs> along with... Whoops. Join us now as Frankie Picasso and her new co-host mix it up with authors, musicians, and interviews with world-changing people. Let's begin Okay, let's begin now, because it only makes sense. What? <laughs> Welcome to Frankie Sends and More. Today, uh, we have a bit of a different show with only two guests, but I am so glad that they are both here. Joining us will be author Sharon Smith and later our resident movie correspondent, Brent Marchand. He's going to join us to discuss some of the, some of the latest movies with meaning uh now we hear everybody <laughs> on the show so like there's a whole group of us anyway welcome as i said to frankie's answer more uh have you heard about the fires in fort mcmurray many of you have i'm sure how could you not well you know today i i was reading and i and i heard about the songs of joy and courage with the 300 300 south african firefighters who came to help uh fight this wildfire Hang on a second. Ben, I'm hearing you on my show. <laughs> in the office. Live radio, folks. This is what happens. In live radio. I just love it. Anyway, the, uh, the situation in Fort McMurray, Saskatchewan is dire, and the wildfires remain out of control. It's estimated that over 581,695 hectares, including 4,600 in Saskatchewan, are on fire. And But they now have a new perimeter, thank goodness, of 984 kilometers. However, you know, extreme burning conditions exist. And so these 300 South African firefighters came to Canada. They got off the plane. They started singing and dancing. And, and they said that, that when they do this, it just it helps them to bring um, joy. To, and they wanted to, you know, make the Canadians feel really good and that the native singing is just their way of a banding together it bonds them as firefighters and then they went out to uh to fight fires with them so that's pretty cool and i want to thank those south africans and everybody else who's working tirelessly on these fires because it's just absolutely horrific what is going on out there uh the wildlife the you know the manpower the people like it's just it's horrible all the forest that's being burnt and all the people who had to evacuate so, again, thanks to all of those folks. We really do appreciate it. Uh, like many young girls, Sharon Smith, she wanted to be many things. And one of those things was a journalist. But life has a way of taking a journey uh, of curves instead of straight lines. And her talent to write was utilized in songwriting instead. For about 30 years, she spent her time as a singer-songwriter and the founder of a children's theater troupe. She's a mother of three. She nurtured her talents and eventually she became a university graduate, an adult university graduate of anthropology and psychology. Her journaling came later as she found herself alone for the first time in her life, trying to understand the next iteration of her life. And out of this journaling blossomed an author. And she is the author of the book composed of many of those journals titled A Silent Bugle, Journals of an Alzheimer's Daughter. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Frankie. Wow, what a crazy start to the show. 
I've never had that before. Just, yeah, it certainly got the blood going. That's good. Yeah, that's good. A, little, that a little bit, but that's okay. We're really glad that you're here. And and thank you. It. Hey, you know, post production. What can I say? Uh, it doesn't happen often, but uh, that's that's why I love live radio. Anything can and will happen. <laughs> oh, you know, it happens on stage too with uh with uh, feedback and in the middle of songs, and you just yeah, deal with yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting that. First of all, the book is fantastic. Let me say that. You wrote a beautiful book. Um, I could tell how much you loved your dad, your daddy's girl. And, yes. and being a daddy's girl, I just, you know, we bonded over that. I can tell you that because I really yeah. felt, I felt the love, really felt the love. And, and, and being a caretaker is not easy. It's not an easy job. And, you know, in any way, shape or form. And I, as somebody who, you know, I was in an accident and injured for like six months in a hospital. I know that we we tend to forget about the caregivers um, mm-hmm. and focus on the patients, but mm-hmm. um, that's a difficult thing to do. But let's talk about life as as you know Frankie's daughter in in the early days. What was it like for you and your family? How how was it made up? Oh, Frankie's daughter in the early days. Well. I th- I think I I was simply the apple of his eye. I I think I just earned that by being born. <laughs> um I have one other brother and of course he was close with my dad because they could fish and do lots of things I I didn't necessarily do with my dad, but he was very protective of me. And um it's like I could do no wrong except when I was a teenager. I was uh-huh. There was one time he threw a pillow at me, and that's about as far as he got with telling me that he didn't like what I was doing. And uh, and he was very supportive. Like I say in the book, he was a consummate teacher. He was a very uh, he was a, a compassionate father. He he just truly took care of me throughout my whole life with my studies, mm-hmm. music because he had been a he had been a kind of an amateur singer <clears throat> when he was little. So it, I, when he when I would sing, he would cry openly all the time so I had Aww. to I had to sort of judge when I could sing and when I couldn't because it moved him because he loved music and uh and he was a, a very intelligent man so I think I I um that's where I got my desire to sort of rise to the best I could be in terms of my academics uh to please him really and to make him proud he he, ins- he inspired that in me because I was proud of him so Tell us about tell us about the the songwriting. Where did that come from? Oh, song well, songwriting I think is is it's a gift. You, mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, that, you, that you I I don't know where it came from. I it it started very young for me. I guess when I was uh, I I forget, oh yeah I think I may tried to write my first song when I was thirteen or fourteen, and then when I left home and became a kind of a gypsy troubadour. Uh, actually, I didn't write a lot, a lot of songs, and I did folk songs for years and years and years. And the songwriting started um, when I moved to Thunder Bay in uh, to go to university there in 1993. I just, just, I just started to write songs. I just had things that I wanted to say, and I had a guitar, and I knew how to play it. So that's what I did. I just started to write them. Okay, so your vehicle was a guitar. That was my your, vehicle. Your... Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, and that's that's what I played in the band. Yeah. And you you've got three children, and are any they're musicians? Some of them, one of them I know because we just talked about it. Yeah, two of them are musicians. Uh, one is um, Amber. She's a, a successful musician. She tours a lot, and she's fairly well known across Canada. What's her My, band's name? 
Her, her name is Amber McLean. So it's A-M-B-R-E. Oh, check her out. She's remarkable. Uh-huh. And she, um, she doesn't have a band right now. She tours by herself because she's a one-man band. She's a looper. And she makes a, a huge sound on stage with just her voice and her and her looping machine and um so my oldest son is a is a wind turbine engineer he decided he was not going to do anything to do with music because he didn't want to compete with his sister he's like that and uh, he's good at what he does (laughs) his wife says he's got a great rock voice when no one's around he sings rock songs to her and my youngest son is a is a tremendous banjo player and musician and he's actually a, a traveling hobo musician he travels across canada playing music and uh living in the woods so, wow wow <laughs> interesting yeah. interesting yeah they all are very individual very strong interesting people <laughs> and you you founded a theater troupe for kids does that come from your own children's need to play and act or it absolutely did. Yeah, it yeah. came from I guess when uh, when Amber was around uh, six or seven, I think there wasn't any any theater in the schools. They weren't doing that in the schools at that time up where we lived, and I really felt it was important for children to experience that because it made them come out of themselves. Right. And uh, so I started it with about six or seven of her friends from school, and um, these little girls wanted to do cats and I said said no I said it's 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 just too complicated and it's it's really kind of it was over their heads right they were only six and seven so we invented a play called putty cats and they all became one of the cats from uh, cartoon characters so one was Garfield one was the pink panther two of them were the Siamese cats from we are Siamese if you please you know from uh, uh, Lady Tramp one was Sylvester Oh, it was so much fun, and we um, That's we hilarious. put on that. But yeah, and I, it only did it for a couple of years, and then by the time they were eleven, uh, it was I just couldn't uh, I couldn't do it anymore. It was it was a lot of work to do, it. and I was raising two other little kids. So, and then you yeah. went to to school. You went back to school to get your sociology psychology degree. I did. I went wow. back in my forties because I thought university would give me a job. Yeah, yes. <laughs> other than a real job, a real job <laughs> <laughs> to raise my children, and uh, yeah. so I, I stayed there for four years, and I loved being at school. I and and I, I like to say I educated myself out of a job because I um, I majored in native studies, oh, anthropology, okay. and native studies, yeah, yeah. and I and I thought I would be a liaison. I thought I could be a really good liaison between the I native culture. Too. You know that. <laughs> Yeah, I love the native. That too, me too. Well, here's what happened. Yeah. I because I understood the native culture and loved them. They called me their blue-eyed cousin because of my my spirit is so is so similar, sure. and 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 because I could translate and talk to my culture. I mean, it's all English, but there's concepts that have to be translated. But by the time I finished, and I had spent four years with. Um, native people my age because they're all they were coming off the reserve at as mature students like me and getting their degrees and going back to help the reserves it was like okay I don't have a job now mm-hmm. <laughs> because really what they want is for their own people. Um, culture to be talking about their culture yeah and I respected that and I respected that so that's that was my university attempt <laughs> Oh my gosh! But it and was a great experience. We got a minute. We got just just a little under a minute before we take our first commercial break. Um, but after, when did you become a personal support worker? After that, 
Uh, well, because, you know, as a musician, I had to have side jobs all the time because, right. you know, gigs will come sometimes and come not, not sometimes. And so I started doing that in, I started doing that in Thunder Bay when I was going to university, actually, and then continued it in Guelph once the band was formed um, and did that for about four years while we were doing our shows and rehearsing and the okay. things musicians do. Yeah. Yeah, well, that totally makes sense because you never know when the next gig's coming from. But uh, we are going to go to a break very soon. You're listening to um, host Frankie Picasso on Frankie Sense and More. I'm talking to author Sharon Smith. She's the author of A Silent Bugle. It's a wonderful little book. And um, stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We are coming right back to speak to this fascinating gypsy of a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sense and More will be right back after we pay the bills. Last night, my husband was laughing as he was reading about the differences between men and women. According to the article, men get single tusks or hiccups more often than women. Everyone knows that women are better at multitasking than men. I'm good at both multitasking and procrastinating, which means right now there are 28 things that I'm putting off until later. What's another word for a person who puts everything off until the last minute? A cunctator. Women blink nearly twice as much as men. And while men can read smaller print than women, women can hear better. In fact, when a woman says, what? She heard you. She's just giving you a chance to change what you said. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. The Center for Affordable Prosthetics is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing low-cost 3D-printed limbs to individuals in need. These guys are doing the world some good. Imagine the joy they bring to young and old amputees who cannot afford the thousands of dollars needed to acquire a prosthetic limb. These fine folks can do it with today's technology for a few hundred bucks, and they do it in style. With Star Wars, Marvel, and more themed limbs, it's the coolest thing ever and hopefully will bring many smiles to many faces who before might not have had much hope of having a hand or arm or leg or foot again. Find the Center for Affordable Prosthetics on Facebook today and give them a like and a donation to their cause. Let's rally behind these hope bringers and tip the scale towards a brighter day. Well, we paid a couple of bills, and we are back with Sharon Smith. We're so happy that you are still with us, too. Thanks for joining us. Sharon wrote the book, A Silent Bugle, a tribute, really, to her father and her the work that she did as his sole caregiver um, through, through Alzheimer's. And you wrote, and I know I have it somewhere because it touched me so deeply, um, what you said there. I just want to make sure that I find it and I apologize for not having it right at my fingertips. Um, Oh, day by day, hour by hour, I lost my father to Alzheimer's dementia as his sole caregiver. I almost lost myself. Mm -hmm. That's very profound words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you mean? How did you almost lose yourself? Well, that's, that's a really big question. And that's kind of partly what the book is about Mm -hmm. because I don't think I'm alone. In, in the process, uh, when someone that you 
not not just someone that you love because there are there are spouses looking after people with alzheimer's and i get that but when it's a parent Mm -hmm. and that parent has been in your life from the moment you took your first breath yeah your self-identity is 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 not separate i you grow up and you become your own person i get that and and being a rebel i really became my own person but at your core that daddy is still daddy yes and that person's been in your life since you knew life that's pretty profound. Yeah. So the world that you know has this little figure in it, right? Yeah. You can't paint a landscape of your life without that person in it. Your mom and dad, right? Generally. Sure. So yeah. when they pass, it, for everybody, it's traumatic. But when they disintegrate yeah. in front of you and they're kind of still there, but they're not there. Honestly, I found parts of myself disintegrating because oh. it was like my picture was disintegrating uh, yes. and I had, and <clears throat> I mean, you could say that, well, you just reinvent your, you reinvent your world, which we do, but it, while it's happening, he's still there uh, to all appearances. So yes. I'm not going to reinvent my world while he's still there, but he's not there. He's becoming like a shadow figure in that world. And on the psych that has a really profound um, effect. You know, I understand that. And, and not just him, you know, going away through his dementia, but just even as an adult in our, you know, are you in your fifties? You know, I'm in my fifties and I see my daddy's 91 Mm -hmm. and you know, this man who was in my mind, massive, who could do anything and you could call up and he could magically make everything right. You know, he's, he's, he's tiny now, Yeah, you know, like, like you touch him and he's, and he's kind of bony and that was, that wasn't dad. Dad had like big chest and, you know, big arms and everything. And, and he's okay. And he's, you know, vibrant and everything else. But I still think, okay, he's going to go and I'm going to be an orphan. Yes, that's right. You you think, and my husband goes, you're not an orphan. You've got kids, you've got, you know, but you feel like that when you're that close. Absolutely. You do. And, and, uh, for, for, it's not just dementia, I guess for anybody that loses a parent slowly. Yeah, it's a slow process of becoming an orphan. And I don't like I I want to talk about this when I do the book tour. I don't even think we have the language yet to really express what that feels like, because we can use words like it's painful. It's it's uh, we can use these words. But to me, it's a this cocktail of emotions that you're carrying around that that we I don't even know if we have the language yet. I think we're just, just trying to discover the language now of what the caregiver feels we're, we're inventing words for what the for the person who's going through it feels well we but call we the, call us a sandwich generation right the, the yeah. where we now have children and we have parents that we're looking after mm-hmm. and and that's difficult in itself but for yeah. you to give up everything and to go and live move in with your father and literally look after him well you know at the time i when i when i made the decision and i made the decision in a split second it was a split second. I saw him one morning because I would go to my parents' home, which was a two-hour drive away, and stay for three days and then come back to my apartment and work. <clears throat> one morning when I was leaving, because my mom was physically needed help, mm-hmm. uh, he just looked at me and started to cry and said, you have to leave. And my heart broke. And on that drive home, I went, yep, that's, that's not going to happen again. I quit my job, got rid of my apartment, and moved there because... I, I could just see his need was far greater than my need because I didn't have a partner. I didn't have a job that I was stuck to. It was mm-hmm. a very mobile job. Why wouldn't I? I thought, why wouldn't I go? I have no reason not to go besides the fact that I love him, which means I will go. So 
uh, when people say, oh, it's so great what you did for your dad, I, I think it's not that great. It was just a natural decision. But you know what? Is, I understand. And it was great what you did for your dad. But if our society has become so selfish that they say it was great what you did for your dad, and yet other civilizations, other cultures, it would just be a natural thing to do. Yeah. And, and I think you know? it would. And I think partly my studies in social anthropo- cultural anthropology yes. and staying with Native people in the reserve, I got to see how they treat their elders. And you're absolutely right. That's the one thing I brought back down to southern Ontario with me was uh, the way they treat their elders, the, the, the good reserves, like the, right. obviously I'm talking about the ones that are healing. The way they treat their elders was so different from the way. I love my grandmother, but she was kind of off to the side. They they pull their elders in, and that impressed me immensely. It yes. really did. It, and so I, I think you're right that it, that affected me to the point where I kind of automatically responded. Yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I didn't. Great. I didn't have a husband and still and still and teenagers still in the home. I, you know, to, to be realistic, Which made it more difficult. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It was obviously that's hard for people. They can't just say bye-bye to their families. I, I I was mobile. I had a cat and a dog. They went with me. I just sort of uprooted my How little... long How long did your mom <laughs> last after you moved there? 10 months. She she ten lasted months. 10 months. Yeah. Oh, and then um and then uh you know it really wasn't my intention to be honest to to stay on as long as I did because I didn't feel like I had the credentials even though I had worked as a PSW. Sure. Uh but it just I just couldn't leave him. I mean, the first year we were both grieving her death. Yeah. And then by the time, well, we never stopped grieving your mother, really. But by the time it had soothed a bit, we were into a pattern together mm-hmm. of living together and, and doing the three, like I talk about in the book, those three oasis. We we both enjoyed doing those things. So why should I leave? It was only in the fourth and fifth year when he got, when it was difficult mm-hmm. because his condition got very difficult and he got very feisty and, resistive yes that's when uh yeah it was it was difficult that's very difficult isn't it i mean to see the personality change Mm -hmm. and and you know and you know in your head you're going okay well it's a disease you know he's not really angry at me but it's very difficult not to take that personally when you're really looking after somebody it is giving up everything for them it is very very difficult and i and i and i think the journaling helped me because i could I mean, I, some of those journals were so dark, they never made it into the book because I was really having to purge and vent how hurt I felt. Yeah. I knew he didn't mean to say it. My brain knew that. Of right. Course but I the knew. heart hurts anyway. The heart hurts. And the little girl that I still am inside yes. to him yes. was the one that received it and didn't receive it very well because yeah. like, so, uh, it's so hard it's, to explain to people who have not been a daddy's girl. To understand it, that relationship, isn't it? It is very hard. I feel yep. bad. Like my own daughter didn't have that, but yeah, you know, the, she goes, "Why are you, why is he so reverent? Like, why do you, you know, like because it was so special." Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. He's he's such a, a wise figure. Yeah. And I mean, the m- mom is a, is a different figure unto yes. herself too. Yeah. But I think um, there are even people that have read this book whose whose father didn't pass with dementia who have said the same thing as you they just loved their dad so much that they cried through this book they oh didn't, yeah they didn't alzheimer's wasn't even in their life but but you're right it's that it's that feeling of of losing this this person that is almost like a little god in your he life is like a little god for sure yeah. now yeah. do you have your book at hand i do 
pick a page, any page. Read us a little bit from a journal. Let, oh. let, let the audience hear something. Okay, I'm going to pick one of my favorites. It's going to just take me a sure. sec. Take because um, you'll recognize, oh, from dad to papa. Yeah. I like this one because it was... Do you remember? Can you set up the scene? Do you remember it? Well, um, I don't remember when I started to call him Papa. Okay. I, I honestly don't remember. It just sort of seemed to happen. And I guess uh, like at, long after it happened, I, I thought, well, what, what am I doing? I wonder how come I'm all of a sudden calling him Papa? Because mm-hmm. I called him Dad all my life. Mm-hmm. So... And, and this book is just little vignettes, as you know, which I like. It's just little yeah. stories that don't take yeah. too long to read. So, somewhere along the way, I stopped calling my dad, Dad. I had been calling him Dad all my life. And except for the era of the Frankie stories, which is so funny because his name was Frankie. I know. <laughs> when we all called him Frankie now and again, I had never thought of him as anything but Dad. But in about the third year of our journey together, I suddenly found myself calling him Papa. The word just appeared from out of nowhere, it seemed, and became a common part of our rapport. I liked the soft, sweet sound of it. It made me feel softer and sweeter in return. There was a soothing kindness to the way it rolled out of my mouth. My dad never objected to it, so I just assumed it made him feel good, too. Something about the earthy ethnicity of the word itself lifted us both out of the mundane sameness of plain old official-sounding dad and gave our relationship a sense of continuity, of ancestral significance. At least for me, it did. So I continued to call him that for the rest of the few, last few years of our time together. Then again... I just may have unconsciously adopted it because of my fondness for the song Papa, Can You Hear Me? from the Broadway hit musical Yentl. <laughs> I had long admired the way Streisand sang that song so tenderly, and fancying myself as the heroine in a musical could have had the potential to empower my weakening resolve. But in all seriousness, it was that feeling of tenderness that was so vital for me. I think the tenderness of the word Papa alone helped me cope with and relinquish my own stubborn resistance to losing what he had been in order to gently accept what he was becoming. Wow, that's beautiful. It's, you know, the imagery and, and just the way you self-examine as you write your journal. I mean, of course, that's what they're for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful, really beautiful. And, well, and I, ho- I hope that you're reading when you go out on your book tour, because it's special. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to... Uh... I'm sort of trying to sculpt what it is I'm going to do and say, so I'm I'm adding that to to the idea of of reading maybe a different thing at each at each or just reading the audience. That's what you do as a musician. You sure. read the audience and decide which song is best for everybody, and that's probably what I'll do. Yeah, yeah. We're, we've we've got um, about a minute, maybe a bit less, until we go to a commercial break. And when we come back, uh, Sharon wrote a song. Speaking of singing and songs and audiences, um, you, you you wrote the song and. Let's set it up for them, because when we come back, we're going to play it as we come back in. Your daughter is actually singing it. Your daughter, she, Amber. Yeah, yeah, she's singing it because it was recorded by the band that we were both in together for uh, for quite a few years. Really and, good um, band. Really good oh, band. Oh, Ken was wow. a good It's just we all evolved, and everybody went different ways. So it lasted five years, and we had a, we had a good run. Yeah, so wait. We're going to go. So stick around. Don't go okay. anywhere. If you have to have a bio break, go and do that. Come back quick, because we are going to come back and hear the song, I Remember. Thank you. Something to look forward to. <laughs> we're just getting warmed up. Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. Florida. Secret 
cuisines and sacred rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom, ingenuity, and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures. To her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons, her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. Decades pass in the blink of an eye. Things change because time never stands still. Have you ever wondered what life was like in the proverbial way back when? Visit the historic Goodman LeGrand Home and Museum to witness a time capsule of days gone by. Located at 624 North Broadway in Tyler, Texas, with open hours of 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every Tuesday and Saturday, it's more than worth your time. It's a must to remember life as it was. Call 903-531-1286. That's 903-531-1286 to learn more. And we're back, and we are going to play Sharon's song, I Remember.
beautiful song. Just gorgeous. Yeah. Everybody sounds great on it. And, and it's just a great song. Was that written? Did you say you wrote that before your dad became ill? Yeah. I wrote that years and years before he was diagnosed. It was very prophetic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now tell me about your family. What did they think about the book? Um, My family are very supportive of the book. Because they all knew him, right? So mm-hmm. uh, they, they're, and everybody who knew him loved him. He was such a character. So uh, even friends that uh, helped me look after him in the end and knew him are very supportive of the book. I did a, I did a Kickstarter mm-hmm. uh, around this book in order to, um, to fund my East Coast tour. And really, my friends and family just stepped up. They stepped up. Yeah. And the thing is now they're saying, oh, yeah, I love that story. But remember the time Frankie did this? Yeah, and yeah. it's like, oh, why didn't you tell me that before I wrote the book? But there's just so many stories. of it. He was such a character, Frankie. He Seriously, he was he was kind of unforgettable. <laughs> so, and I know it's really personal, but what do you hope that other people will get from reading it? Uh, I guess I hope they'll... Uh, um, well, I, it, it depends who's reading it. I guess for other caregivers, I hope that they'll maybe get a sense that if if they're looking after someone who unravels in, in a difficult way, because not everybody does. Right. Some people unravel very sweetly. <laughs> and my dad didn't. And, that, and, and that's where my coping skills had to either develop or not develop. I'm hoping they will feel less alone. I'm hoping they will feel like it's oh, yeah, it's okay to sort of feel really frustrated and want to scream at this person, even though I love them. Because take them out for a cocktail. (laughs) Oh, yeah, take them out for a cocktail every day at four. Yes. Uh, Just less alone, because I felt really quite alone. This was like 15, almost how many years ago? Like quite a few years ago. There weren't the same support groups, certainly not on the Internet and not even in the community. So I was, I felt quite a bit alone a lot of the time and that's what I'm hoping this book will bridge where people will start to talk with one another about these more difficult feelings and um, maybe just in reading the story they'll see their own story a little differently so if they as, need to. As, as you felt your dad disappearing and, and parts of yourself disappearing now that he's gone like when he was when he actually left and transitioned what did Sharon feel like what did you feel did you did did you feel empty? Did you feel, you know, not glad that he's gone, but did you feel, ah, oh, you know, I can come back to myself? Did you come back to yourself? Did you transition into something else? Uh, that's a process, too. Yeah, that's a process, too. I, when I see pictures of the, the the Christmas that he passed, and then I went, I came out here to the church, and I was wearing his hat around all weekend. Someone oh. took a picture of me with a great big smile on my face, and I remember looking at it later and thinking, Wow, I look, I look rather happy. <laughs> but, <laughs> how dare um, I? <laughs> so there, so how dare I? So there was a certain relief because his last year was not nice, and he, and if he could have known what he was going through, he he would have not wanted to be there. Oh. Uh, it was it was a, it was a terrible toll the last year. So I was relieved that he finally transitioned. I really was. But then you see, then you start the journey of mourning. And when I was writing this book, I had a friend who's um, a psychiatric nurse. She was at uh, Homewood in Guelph for years. She looked at me and she said, you haven't finished grieving your father. And I said, yes, I have. She says, no, you haven't, Sharon. I said, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, I'm like, whatever. And then, uh, boy, did I realize she was right. Because in the writing of the book, 
there were so many days I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I, right. and I, and it was very cathartic, um, to take that morning journey. Cause it, it took a while. I mean, his it different though, from your dad be, and your mom, like what, <gasps> I think it was because yeah. with, with my mom, there was a, a very instant finality. Mm-hmm. And even though it's shocking, you start to deal with that. You right. deal with that, that you realize that she's gone and you have to learn to live without her. And there's certainly grieving and mourning. And even to this day, of course, I miss her terribly. But with my dad, it's like... <sighs> Hello? We just lost Sharon. Oh, no. Sharon? I'm you're here. Back? Oh, you're back. I'm okay. Here. Yay. Okay. Um, with my dad, you think you're preparing as it's happening. Mm-hmm. You think you're preparing in slow motion because, the, 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 because he's leaving in slow motion. Right. But, but, and so when he actually passes, you're kind of still grieving in slow motion. So it carries on. Right. It took longer. It, which is almost um, hard to describe why that would happen. Yeah. Interesting, but, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I and I still am. I mean, I listened to the song. Remember this? I remember this morning, and I just was. I thought I better not cry on the show because it's like it's sobbing. okay. I cried already. <laughs> why not? Okay. You know, we can all relate. You know, yeah. if you love a parent, you can all relate. And yeah. I think that. You know, I, as horrible as this might sound, I know that, um, I'll probably grieve my father more than my mother in some respects. I don't know, but it's hard to say that. And and it's not fair. My mom is gone. She's been gone. Actually, two days ago was the anniversary of her death. She's been gone 14 years now, but you know, it it is hard. It's harder than you, than you think it's going to be, even if your relationship isn't the perfect one or whatever, it's always hard to say goodbye. Now, um, Alzheimer's, you know, obviously was a big issue for you, but are you still involved with groups? Um, well, I'm, I've been mainly involved with trying to, to get this tour together and, mm-hmm. and doing that. But I have reached out to um, two or three Alzheimer's associations and their directors have read the book and given me great, you know, great reviews and, and accolades. Uh, I haven't started to book any s- speakings at uh, Alzheimer's Association, but, that, but that's sort of in my, that's kind of in the, in my plans to do that. And maybe to, there are some homes that have asked me if I would come and talk. So <clears throat> I will be doing that. And you know, strangely enough, as I've been thinking about what I want to talk about when I take the book on tour, because I, it, I want to talk about more than just the book. Right. All these insights have been coming to me about what I really feel about Alzheimer's. It's it's kind of interesting. So I've got this body now of things I really feel passionate about talking to the to the world of Alzheimer's. So I don't know where that's going to take me. I, that wasn't in my expectation. Right. But, you didn't be, yeah. you become a spokesperson. I, I just feel like I have some things that I really want to say. And um, I didn't expect that to come out of this. What, I really what, didn't. <laughs> what would you want to say right now to somebody who is a caregiver for their parent with Alzheimer's? Is there any one piece of advice or any one thing that you want to, you know, hey, you got to know this? Yeah, I, I do. And I would say uh, uh, as much as, as all the uh, the medical and the hospice people will tell you, you have to take time for yourself, which is true. You have to eat well. You have to sleep well if you can. It's really important to allow yourself to feel the emotions that you're feeling and not feel guilty. Put them down on paper. 
and say it's okay to feel them because they're really just residual. You know better, but they're residual emotions coming from knee-jerk reactions of, of things that we maybe can't control, and it's okay. It's, it's not unusual to feel those things. And you have to caregive yourself. Get, give right. your, put yourself in the picture of your caregiving. That's very hard for caregivers to do. For sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it's a selfless my... act in itself to be a caregiver. And people yeah. will, you know, I'm sure they call and say, oh, Sharon, how's your dad? How's your dad? And, Absolutely. You know, oh, yeah. Do they say, hey, Sharon, do you need a break? Can I break you? Yeah. Can I, you know, not break yeah. you, but can I, you know, relieve you? Yeah. Would you like to go get your hair done or something? <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. And and caregivers have to really realize that they they need to caregive themselves and 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 honor their own feelings as well. So that's I think that's important. I think um, it's a spectacular book. I think you're really courageous, an interesting woman, and I think it's going to be really exciting for you to go on your book tour and for people to meet you and uh, some I think amazing experiences are going to come up and it's going to be very exciting. To find I think out so too. What yeah, I'm, be. yeah, I'm I'm very excited. And I'm excited trip. that my my brother is coming too because he was he was a rock for me. He says yeah. he didn't do anything. Oh, I didn't do anything. He did. Every time I needed to call, he listened. He oh, was. You know what? I wanted to say this one thing because we are going to go to break and we're kind of come back with Brent. But I wanted to. Um, one thing that kind of made you a little bit livid was that people said, "Oh, looking after them is like uh, looking after a baby." Yes. That made yes. you a little pissed off. No, I don't. I'm going to talk about that because I. That's not true. Yeah. That's really not true. A baby is on a very different learning curve trajectory than, a, than someone who's losing all their learning. It's not the same thing at all. And the emotions are not the same. And the respect that you have to give this person just because they're declining uh, is very different from a kid. You, you, you respect a child's learning curve because they're going to learn more and more and more and more and more. Right. right? Yep. You have you have to respect what is being lost. It's I, I don't like the analogy. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, on that note, think about yeah. that, folks. We're going to go to commercial Thank break, you. and when we come back, we're going to the movies. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we'll be right back after we pay the bills. It's words you never heard. If you have a lot of spizzerinkdom or the will to win, and you have a strong desire to be a part of your favorite sports team, the National Hockey League might be for you. Did you know that if both goalies on an NHL hockey team are injured, anyone at the game is eligible to step in and play the part? Teams have resorted to using their coaches, team owners, and even their web designers to fill in for injured goalies. It's as simple as slipping into your breezers or hockey pants. The original hockey puck was made out of frozen cow dung. The fastest puck shot on record was clocked at 114 miles per hour. And I'd like to take this opportunity to send out a special thanks to the men and women of our armed forces serving our country around the world. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's words you never heard. Is there a particular food item that you absolutely crave to the point of madness? Then you're an opsomaniac like me. I love avocados, for instance, probably because avocados have more protein, fat, and calories than any other fruit. Some folks are afraid of the avocado, nicknaming it the alligator pear for slippery and yucky. What's a word for the fear of food? Sitiophobia. Talk about yummy snacks, let's not forget potato chips. A pound of potato chips costs 200 times more than a pound of potatoes, or tater tatties as Aussies call them. 
The slang word spud derives from the spade-like tool used to dig them out. What's another word for mashed potatoes? Pachi pachi. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. Hey, and you're listening to Frankie Sense and More. I am your host, Frankie Picasso. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, coming up now is our wonderful Liquid Radio Network's movie correspondent, Brent Marchand. And we are thrilled that Brent's book, Get the Picture, Conscious Creation Goes to the Movies, was named the winner for Best New Age Nonfiction in the National Indie Excellence Awards Program. Congratulations, oh, Brent. Well, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a really pleasant surprise. Yeah, I bet. So tell folks how they can get it. Uh, the book is available in print and ebook formats. It's available from Amazon, Barnes and Noble uh, in Canada. It's available through Kobo uh, okay. Chapters, and nice. also from uh, the iTunes Store. Before we get to the movie, Sharon, tell folks how they can get your book. I forgot to ask you. Um, pretty similar, uh, but not, not Barnes and Noble. So it's available through ordering through Chapters, Amazon, Kobo, Kindle. Yeah, perfect, awesome. Yeah. Okay, Brent, who's at the movies? What movies are we going to this week? Well, the big movie this week was the latest uh, release in the X-Men franchise, the mm-hmm. super action-adventure hero movie, which um, has been drawing not terribly great reviews, unfortunately, but I thought it was terrific. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah, That's really. Apocalypse? It, it, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's X-Men Apocalypse. Uh, it's a story of a resurrected being who comes to life and decides he wants to wipe the slate clean, and he does battle with the, the uh, X-Men superheroes, the ones who have special powers, sure. so that they can try and stop him from doing it. And the thing that I really liked about it is, you know, it's got great action, it's got great sequences with special effects and everything, mm-hmm. but it also really does an excellent job at exploring issues related to managing one's personal power and the responsibility that comes with that. And that applies not only to the villains, but also to the heroes, which right. is really interesting because it's something that if we all have this tremendous reserves of personal power that we don't really have a great awareness of, mm-hmm. uh, we better learn it before we start to exercise it. Right. And, and this movie really does a great job of doing that. Just because you have a nuclear weapon doesn't mean you have to hit the button. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I want to know about the lobster. That just sounded too exciting for me. <laughs> Lobster is probably one of the most unusual movies I have ever seen in in years. Um, basically, it's set in a in a future near future version of England, where um, being coupled is mandatory, and um, people who find themselves single end up going to special facilities that they call hotels, where they're required to find a mate within. 45 days, or they get turned into an animal. <laughs> an animal of their, it's an animal of their choice, by the way, but it's still an animal. The animals still have a, do the animals have a choice in a falling in love and going back? Or? Well, the theory, the theory is that if, they can't, if these people can't find love as, uh, as human beings, uh-huh. then hopefully they should be able to find it in a second chance as an animal. Oh, my goodness. So. Awesome. <laughs> and, and so Colin Farrell decides that he'll be a lobster if he can't find love? Yes. Yes. And he, he decides he wants to be a lobster because lobsters, if they don't get caught and boiled, have one of the longest lifespans of any animals, and they remain sexually fertile their entire lives. That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> and who's his love interest? Is that Rachel Weiss I saw? Yes. I couldn't um, it was. Yeah. Now, um, the one thing, uh, people who are opposed to this notion of uh, mandatory coupling, 
uh-huh. um, go off and kind of live on their own. They call themselves loners. Okay. And they are rampant uh, individualists who reject anything even remotely suggesting the idea of being partnered. Okay. So you have a very interesting kind of two kinds of dogma set up in this movie. Um, you know, the people who are mandatorily, voluntarily going into the coupling rituals and the people who are you know, trying to be rampant individualists. So it, it's, it's a, a metaphor in many ways for kind of where our society is these days as well uh, in terms of, you know, the polarization in viewpoints, right. either right or left. So there's, there's a lot more than just this kind of quirky story going on on the surface. But it's it doesn't really, matter um, if, you, if you fall, like, gay or not, you can fall in love with whoever you want. But Yeah, or, yeah part, I mean, I mean, they're not okay. opposed to being, you know, heterosexual or homosexual. It's a question right. of being coupled with somebody as opposed okay. to being single. And why is that so important? Uh, they seem to feel that it's uh, important for maintaining conformity in society. You know, oh. it's uh, a lot of issues. Do, do they get changed using magic or technology? Technology. Okay, cool. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> so it's, it's really strange. It's it's really fun. It's, it it starts to drag a little bit in the second hour. It kind of goes off on a couple of tangents that I think they could have done without. But uh, it, it's really one of the most unusual movies I've the seen in quite a while. The bizarre, but fun. Yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. <laughs> Money Monster. Okay, I saw Money Monster. Let's talk about that. Money Monster, we're getting to another film here that's dealing with a question of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it tells the story of a host of a, a madcap financial news program uh, played by uh, George Clooney, who offers news about what's going on on Wall Street, and he also offers stock tips. Well, one of them goes bust, goes bust and he ends up being uh, taken um, hostage while he's on the air by one of the disgruntled investors who lost his money in a bad investment. So he demands that uh, not only that Clooney apologize to him for, you know, ha- having caused him this financial loss, but he also wants him to corral the uh, the CEO of the company and get him on the air so he can, uh, you know, get an apology from him as well. And if he doesn't do what he asks, um, he's got him fitted in a vest with a bomb. <laughs> <gasps> oh, so he's yeah. not asking for money? He's just asking for an apology? Yeah, well, he, does, he wants money, too, but, I mean, he's mainly oh. concerned with getting the apology. So. Oh, interesting. Because this he thinks really... that, they're taking, that you know, they're lying to the public and they're taking them for a ride and, yeah. and all of this. What was very disturbing about the movie, I don't know if I can talk about that or not, though. There was something very disturbing because I talked to you about it at the end, and it really, really bothered me, and I, I actually ended up with tears. Um, because it was just a comment on society, how cold we are, really. Like, you know, we're, it, it, it's like reality TV. You know, it was all being it televised. Is. And this whole thing was like, like, um, you know, when, when the juice was going down the highway in his car and everybody was like, you know, OJ, they, they were following him for the, you know, the 10 minutes. And then when it's all over, it's over kind of thing. And it's it's kind of like that in a way with this movie. Um, it's it's interesting too because it really explores the question of responsibility from a variety of angles. Yeah, you know you yeah. have the you have the responsibility of of the host giving his viewers accurate information. You mm-hmm. have the responsibility of the CEO giving his investors accurate information so mm-hmm. they can make a smart decision. Mm-hmm. You have the responsibility of the investors saying make sure you do your homework mm-hmm. before you go into something. Mm-hmm. You know, not it's not a good deal. Yeah, um, and everybody is kind of trying to. Shed Pass themselves, the buck. you ah. know. So wow, sounds um, like the world. 
Yeah, yeah, it is exactly. a little bit like the world. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, it was really directed by Jodie Foster, in and she does a great job of really maintaining this kind of edgy quality. Yeah, she was awesome. Yeah, and 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 Jodie Foster is a director. She just Foster's maintains the <gasps> really edge of your seat quality all throughout all throughout the movie. Yeah, really good. I know Sharon's, Sharon wanted to hear about Vaxed because that's. Very yeah, now that was really interesting. Um, this is a very controversial doc- documentary. Uh, it, it first kind of came to the public's notice when it was withdrawn from the Tribeca Film Festival in New York earlier this year. Right. And that was probably the best thing that could have happened for it because suddenly everybody wanted to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, another case of you, you want what you can't have. Right. So it's, it's gone to a lot of other film festivals. It's gone to a lot of special screenings. I saw it at a special screening here in Chicago where it was hosted by um, Andrew Wakefield, the director, and several of the other people who were um, the interviewees in the movie. So and it's the, fascinating. the premise of the movie is, is that the, 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 is it the mumps rubella vaccine? It's a combination MMR pediatric vaccine that's coming okay. under fire as, that all as kids being related get. to, yeah. as far as being related to a spike in autism. Right. Now it's it's now one of the things that in a lot men, of critics in boys. Sorry? In boys. More Primarily in boys, but it does happen in girls too. Right. Um So this is the same to, vaccine though that we've been having since the 50s. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, well there's there's also a, a a spike among specifically among African African American boys also. Okay. Um That's odd. But, but the uh, uh, the premise of the movie is it explores the, the dangers possibly associated with this particular product and this particular condition. And one of the things that a lot of critics, both uh, professional film critics and just general audience members who've been critical of the film, have, have kind of misconstrued, is they try to paint it as a movie that's completely against vaccines, which is not mm-hmm. true. It's, it's against this particular product because yeah. there seems to be evidence linking it. Yeah, yeah. Now they said they're saying that doesn't mean that there can't be problems with other ones, but right now the evidence is indicating that the only hard proof we have is related to this particular product. Yes, right. and they and they knew it. That's the problem. Yes, yes, that's that's yeah. the so thing. So are they that, saying that that you know the risk is you know is is not as great as people having mumps and rubella and, and you know the measles and everything else? It's not as dangerous. Well, they were saying that before this combination product was introduced, there were individual vaccines for each of these conditions. Yeah. Okay. And you did not have a spike in autism with each of these individual vaccines. Uh, okay. Yeah. Seems to be They're... something having to do with the combination yeah. okay. and also possibly with the age at which the vaccinations are administered. Oh. If they're given yeah. later, there doesn't seem to be as much of a problem either. I knew they must have been separate because my doctor, when my daughter was born, wouldn't uh, allow rubella. He, 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 he authorized the MM, but he wouldn't allow the rubella, so they must have been separate because he said it caused whooping cough more than it, than it prevented it, so he wouldn't give it to her. He had that power, that meant, you know, 30 yeah. some odd years ago, yeah. But the scar that we all have that we got as babies, that, what's that one? That, is, is that polio? That was polio. Yeah, that's polio. That's polio, yeah. okay. Because I had, I had the German measles three times. It wasn't fun. Oh, you did? Yeah, I remember having it as a Yeah, I had the standard measles once, and that wasn't fun either. (laughs) Yeah, and mumps. No, it's not fun, but there's also research to say that that, um, when you, the antibodies that your body builds up from getting it are lifetime. The antibodies you get through a vaccine do not not necessarily, yeah. But I have a friend who had polio as a child, and then she got the adult um, 
it came back as an, in an adult form. I can't remember the, what they call it right now because it's been a while since I, we talked about it. But it, it, she did, it did come back. And, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, an emergence, a reemergence of tuberculosis because people aren't getting, you know, vaccinated for that, which is pretty scary, especially immigrants coming into, into the country with tuberculosis. You know, it's a, it's a really, it's a hard debate, isn't it? You have yes. to be safe. I mean, look at how the smallpox wiped out the Indians. Yes. Pretty scary stuff. We've only well, got a minute. So take us to the end, Brent. Oh, well, I was going <laughs> to say, it, it, it's certainly, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, documentary. Um, yeah. I really would encourage people to go see it with an open mind uh, rather than just ruling it dismissively out of hand beforehand, mm-hmm. which a lot of people are doing, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, hear what they have to say. They have uh, an opportunity on their website for you to take action on certain things that you can do to try and push us forward to see, let's get an answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitively. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again for bringing us the movies. I My can't pleasure. wait to hear what's on next month. And congratulations on your book award. Um, Thank you so hopefully much. Folks will come and get, get the picture. Conscious Creation goes to the movies. Oh. You can listen to my interview with Brent um, about his book. Uh, I can't remember what month it was, but go on the goodradionetwork.com website. You'll find it. Right? I will. Thank you so oh there you go, September. Goodbye everybody. Bye. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Take care. Bye Brent. Bye. She and you she the one way to turn my world.